Good morning. Today I'm back out at Georgetown uh, with Dave Maxwell and we've already had a conversation before and you gave some absolute gems of advice to me. Uh, So today I'm hoping that you share them with the audience listening. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. First of all, can you tell us a little about yourself, particularly what you did as a junior commander? Well, sure. Uh, I spent my my early years uh, in the infantry. I was an infantry officer. Uh, My initial tours were in uh, Germany, uh, in the 3rd Infantry Division, a mechanized unit on the inter-German border, um, and then uh, later in Korea, and I, I was in a light infantry unit in Korea, commanded a company on the DMZ, uh, where we conducted uh, combat patrols on the DMZ, uh, especially in the winter months, uh, and then later to Special Forces, uh, and uh, um, I uh, commanded a Special Forces Operational Detachment Alpha, uh, again, focused on Korea and Asia, and I spent most of my career in... Um, uh, in Asia, uh, five tours in Korea, uh, Okinawa, Japan, and two in the Philippines. Uh, and so that's kind that's of my impressive. career in a, in yeah. a nutshell. Absolutely. And and now you're out at Georgetown, obviously. Yes. And can you just describe a little bit about what you do here at Georgetown? Yes. Uh, my last job in the Army, I was on the faculty at the National War College. And when I retired after 34 years, uh, I was able to uh, to find this job here as the Associate Director of the Security Studies Program. Uh, I work for Bruce Hoffman, uh, one of the renowned uh, scholars in uh, terrorism and insurgency uh, in the world. And uh, we have 327, 320 students um, graduate students, all working towards a master's degree in security studies. And our focus really on our seven concentrations of international security, national security, intelligence, terrorism and substate violence, military operations, uh, science and technology and security studies, and unconventional weapons and, and proliferation. Fantastic. Before we get into the first question I normally ask, we talk about an academic-practitioner divide back home. Mm. I've noticed here in the United States they talk about soldier-scholars. Can you talk us through a little bit about what soldier-scholar means in the U.S.? Because I'd put you into that category. (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah, I I think that uh, throughout my career uh, and the people I've served with um, have had always had an innate uh, desire to learn about our profession. I've had many mentors uh, who mentored me. In fact, m- as a junior officer, uh, many of my commanders had attended the School of Advanced Military Studies, which began in the 1980s. And I was always impressed with uh, with those those mentors of mine, which made me want to attend that school. And I did. Uh, as a major, I did a year at Command and General Staff College and then the School of Advanced Military Studies, uh, which really helped me to learn about our profession. And, um, and of course, one of the most important things for us uh, as officers is to continue to study, uh, to be self-learners, lifelong learners, uh, and to have a passion for uh, for knowledge of our profession. And I've been fortunate to have uh, mentors, peers, uh, and many of my, my junior soldiers uh, all have that passion. And I think that's something uh, that we must have and we must encourage in others. And I think the the nexus of theory and practice is really, uh, really the key because we've got to be able to understand strategy, policy, and be able to translate that strategy and policy into campaign plans and then conduct tactical operations that support the strategy. And I think that's uh, that's what we must focus on. Absolutely. And starting young obviously gives you that solid foundation in order to leap forward as you progress throughout your career. Yes, so the first question is always the tough one. It's the prediction about the future. What, how do you see the future operating environment? 
Well, I, I look at uh, three um, three forms of warfare, and I think will be enduring. We have nuclear warfare, traditional warfare, and irregular warfare. Uh, in my mind, though, um, uh, you know, obviously nuclear warfare is the far end of the scale, but something that particularly uh, the United States must be able to uh, to conduct. Traditional warfare, of course, is um, uh, something, you know, also near the worst case, state-on-state -state warfare. Uh, we must have the ability to be able to conduct offensive, defensive operations as well as stability operations in a traditional warfare context. We've got to be able to conduct maneuver warfare. Uh, and in today's U.S. military, we talk about uh, combined arms maneuver and wide area security. Uh, but those are, are really the traditional uh, um, uh, functions of, of an army. And then irregular warfare, uh, and of course in the United States we look at that as unconventional warfare, foreign internal defense, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, and stability operations, the five areas. My real focus though is unconventional warfare, and I think that that is something that we have overlooked uh, for, for a long time. Um, and in the United States we define unconventional warfare as activities to support a resistance or an insurgency uh, to coerce, disrupt, or overthrow a government or an occupying power through and with an underground auxiliary and guerrilla force in a denied area. And that's really the definition. But that's not a U.S.-centric definition. It really also applies to many adversaries. And while the United States may not conduct unconventional warfare because it is a strategic offensive operation, many of our adversaries, and I would say including al-Qaeda, including Iran, and their Iran Action Network are all conducting forms of unconventional warfare, you know, where they are supporting resistance or insurgencies. Uh, and, um, and so we must understand unconventional warfare because I think that's really the essence of the irregular warfare uh, construct there. And so I think that uh, uh, in addition to our traditional warfighting skills, which must be maintained for deterrence, defense, uh, we also have to understand unconventional warfare. Whether or not we practice it, we must know how to counter it. And so to me, the, the paradigm is unconventional warfare and counter-unconventional warfare. Uh, and that helps us to understand how our adversaries are fighting. Uh, however, our traditional warfighting skills play a big role uh, in countering unconventional warfare. So I'm, I'm hesitant, uh, particularly to stovepipe, uh, because so many of our skills in, in all of our disciplines apply uh, in you know across the spectrum of warfare, so we've got to be expert practitioners uh, in in all of the disciplines. Absolutely, because some of those roles converge. There's sometimes an argument that if you train for high and intensity kinetic warfighting, that that because that's at the high end of the scale, that therefore everything underneath that on the spectrum of war. You'll be good at that. Um, what do you think of that argument? Well, and the counter is that people would say counterinsurgency is the graduate level of war. Yes. You know, and I say war is the graduate level of war. So, um, and I, and I think, you know, I think those arguments they come down to people's agendas. They come down to budget fights. They come down to people trying to optimize. Okay, we'll plan for the worst case, high intensity warfare, uh, which as military, you know, prudent military. Planners, we do plan for the worst case, um, but I, I think that uh, to try to say one covers the other, I think that's wrong. I think we have to, and I think we are smart enough uh, in in today's world. In fact, I think our younger 
officers and soldiers are much smarter than, than we are and much more capable of operating in very complex, ambiguous environments, uh, more so than, than us. In fact, you know, it may be counterintuitive, but, uh, you know, some would say that our military would probably be better off if we, uh, if we kind of cut off at the lieutenant colonel level and, and let our, let our junior, uh, our junior force, uh, uh, take some higher level promotions because I think, uh, I think what you find, well, you know, the old saying is the only thing harder, uh, than getting a new idea into a military mind is getting an old one out. And so many of us have our biases and prejudices and, and think about the way things were done when we were young. And it's, it's certainly important to look back at those experiences in history. Uh, and you know, all of our history should be studied, but we also should not necessarily repeat you know history and we should learn from it uh, but I think we should realize that our junior officers and our soldiers sailors airmen marines uh, have capabilities and I think an intellectual capacity uh, that far exceeded mine when I was a junior junior officer yeah so some other things that I've heard is that because of these wicked problems and mm. the complexity that comes with them, that it's very difficult for a junior commander to actually grapple with what's actually going on in the second, third, umpteenth order effects that then flow through. Um, but you're saying that junior commanders are actually intellectually capable in order to understand that. Can you just expand on that idea? Yes. I, I, I have a, a, a belief that... Uh, that all complex political military problems can be solved by reading two books. You know, one is Sun Tzu, The Art of War, and the other is Clausewitz, On War. Uh, and I've been reading those books for my entire career. In fact, this is a copy of, uh, huh. of The Art of War that I have taken with me on every deployment for the last 34 years. And for the listeners, and you can certainly see that it's held together by some tape. At the moment, it looks very, very much a loved book. <laughs> it is. It's gone gone through the ringer, and uh, my copy of On War is uh, yes. well tabbed, and uh, um, and I still read those. And and what I what I these two books, um, I think they don't provide answers, but they provide critical. You know, they they develop critical thinking skills in us. You know, remember Clausewitz was uh, was trying to understand the nature of war and, and his whole book is his wrestling match trying to uh, to figure out what is the enduring nature of war and of course he developed the trinity you know hate enmity and greed uh, rational control and chance uh, but really what he was trying to develop was kudoi you know that military genius that inward looking eye and i think that that is really uh, to me the essence of what we need to focus on which is really bringing together education and experience uh, to be able to operate in the fog and friction of war and any kind of war or any kind of warfare uh, and be able to exercise good judgment, make the right decision at the right time. And that's really our goal. I think that's part of Clausewitz's goal. And I think that he and Sun Tzu uh, provide us that education and give us that opportunity to really have that duel with ourselves to try to understand the nature of war uh, and uh, see the nature of warfare and the character of warfare, character of conflict uh, that exists today, uh, and um, and they help us do that. So I think that uh, for me, um, you know, our education is important, and we need to constantly be learning, thinking critically, 
and combining that with our, our experience. And that's what's going to bring us uh, uh, success in the future. To throw another argument out there, some people also say that uh, you can't teach or educate somebody to be an excellent strategist, that that's a natural ability that people will either have or have not. What's your thoughts on that? Well, and the same thing, our leaders born or made, our strategists born or made. Um, I, I don't know. And, you know, and, and frankly, I don't really care. <laughs> you know, I think that argument is really, you know, there, there is no way to determine uh, is someone, does someone have uh, the ability born or are they made? I think that the what we should do is being is try to educate everyone. Uh, and I would say, you know, as well, even if somebody is not a born strategist or even if they cannot be made a strategist, they still must understand strategy. You know, if I were king for a day, uh, my uh, what I would focus on in professional military education from pre-commissioning, you know, to senior service college would be five basic courses. You know, the first would be military history. We all must study that from the beginning throughout our career. Military theory, opera, or military geography, and people overlook geography uh, today, but we must remember that geography is not just the physical terrain, but the relationship of the physical terrain to people, to culture, you know, to customs. You know, so military geography is is much more than reading maps and uh, and looking at mountains and rivers, and uh, it is really that the interplay of, of humanity and the physical uh, their physical terrain. So we must study that. And you recommended a good book to me last time I was here. I think it was uh, up in your Robert, bookshelf. Robert Collins. Yeah, Miller, right. I mean yeah. um, John Collins. John Collins, Colonel retired, um, and his uh, military geography. Uh, is uh, military geography, Great. John M. Collins, in which I I recommend that for uh, for everybody. The the fourth uh, course I would teach would be operational art, and simply the translation of of uh, strategy and the conduct of campaigns and battles, uh, and and the nexus of of tactics uh, and tactical engagements. Uh, to achieve strategic effects. And then the fifth course would be strategy. And we must learn that, even as second lieutenants, and this goes back to my my feeling of, you know, well, often many people say, well, only senior need, people need to deal with strategy. I think that's that's false. You know, even when you're uh, in your undergraduate education, uh, pre-commissioning, you know, initial service as a junior officer, everybody should study strategy and be exposed to it because we all must understand where we fit in and how we support strategy because for our nations, that's really the, the ultimate, uh, uh, you know, the ultimate. And, you know, the, uh, the saying that, uh, uh, that Sun Tzu didn't say but often attributed to him, you know, that uh, uh, tactics without strategy is the noise, you know, before mm-hmm. defeat. Uh, many people attribute that to Sun Tzu, but it's not in his book at all. Uh, but it is a good, um, you know, a good adage that uh, we should keep in mind. We all must understand strategy. So I would teach military history, military theory, military geography, operational art, and strategy at every level. And unfortunately, today I think that, uh, in particular, many of uh, the U.S. professional military education institutions, we still focus on training, uh, and units train, organizations train. But our educational institutions should educate, uh, and uh, and we shouldn't worry about trying to educate everything or train everything. But if we focus on the five uh, major disciplines there, we will have an educated force who can think critically, and training will will come naturally. Uh, they'll we'll be able to train units, but we really got to think critically, uh, operationally, and strategically. 
Absolutely. I heard a great comment at West Point, actually, that sometimes the training is PowerPoint thin. I thought that that was a great comment, that it is better about the education so that people can have their own independent thought and so that when they're immersed into a new environment, they don't just look at the, the set of solutions that they've been armed with. They look at solutions from history and from doctrine, but they know to analyse that against the context in which they've now been thrown in, which I think obviously comes into what you've just been saying. That's, I think that's great. We cannot be PowerPoint thin. Uh, and I think also along with that is our excessive use of jargon. And I think that our excessive use of jargon has replaced intellectual rigor and critical thinking. Uh, you know, we... We just say now, okay, go do coin or do stability operations or, you know, do this or that. And, uh, you know, again, Clausewitz said, uh, you know, that before you embark on a war, you must understand the nature of the war that you're you're going to fight. Uh, in America in particular, I criticize ourselves as saying, instead of understanding the, the nature of the war that we're going to fight, we our propensity is to try to name it, mm-hmm. you know, to give it a name and... And once it's named, okay, everything's good. Then we can have the narrative, and then we can, you know, all of, everything can, can flow from that. But what seems to happen to me is that once we name it, we stop thinking. And we really, um, again, another thing that I would, I would emphasize is being able for all of us to communicate in plain language, you know, understanding the problem uh, and be able to transmit uh, that understanding uh, both within our military, but also within our governments, and then within the public. Uh, and not everyone knows the jargon. And uh, and while jargon, you know, doctrinal terms can be a useful shorthand, you know, to ensure uh, communication uh, and and ease of understanding. Um, we've also made these words a crutch. Uh, and but I think I fear most that it we replace critical thinking with these, uh, these terms that have become jargonistic. Absolutely. So what role do you see junior commanders playing in this future of these unnamed wars? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, again, I think we've seen uh, so much in the last 10 years, although uh, you know, we don't like what's happened in Iraq and we don't like what's happened in Afghanistan. If we look critically, uh, and again, and I, I use myself as an example, you know, what I did in the first 10 years of my career pales in comparison to what our junior officers have done uh, over the last decade. I mean, the complexity of, of, um, of warfare, uh, of being able to uh, integrate very complex fires uh, from multiple platforms, air, artillery, mortars, you know, to be able to maneuver, uh, to be able to uh, understand the operational environment, to operate amongst the people, uh, to operate with tremendous constraints because of the operational environment. Uh, um, I, I see, and I see our young officers uh, thinking and acting um, at levels that, uh, that are far beyond uh, what I was doing in the Cold War, during the Cold War. And so uh, I think we need to recognize that. Uh, we need to build on that. And, of course, as we draw down, you know, we've left Iraq, we draw down from Afghanistan. Um, you know, the fear is that uh, we will say no more Iraqs and Afghanistans. Uh, but what we have to recognize is that we have a much higher quality of officer and, and force. Uh, we must protect that. We must nurture that. Uh, and uh, and we, we can't 
put them back in the box and go back to just a, a total focus on conventional or traditional warfare, garrison operations. Uh, and I think, ironically, even though we won't be able to, to replicate the intensity of operations that we, we've been conducting or the real-world operations in, in Iraq and particularly Afghanistan, um, the only substitute, uh, you know, we can train. And, of course, a lot of people become frustrated and say, I was doing the real mm-hmm. thing in Afghanistan and now I'm training. Um, but we've got to maintain the skills. So training is important. Uh, and you've got to be able to train in garrison at major training centers. But the only way to maintain the force is through education. You know, that's really the uh, – and what we need to do now, and I'll tell you, you asked me specifically what should our junior officers be doing uh, for the future. One of the most important things they should be doing is writing about their experiences, good and bad. And they should be, just like Clausewitz, they should be wrestling with what they think the future's about. You know, we can't predict the future. And, you know, I – uh, you know, like Neil the, Simpson's book, uh, War from the Ground Up, is a brilliant yes. book by you know, his experiences as a junior commander. In exactly. And we need to encourage that. Uh, and our, our, our leaders need to encourage our junior officers to, to write uh, because that's what's going to contribute to the development of the future force. It's going to contribute to doctrine. Uh, you know, and to remember, doctrine is really... You know, a set of common sense ideas that are proven in practice. You know, the best practices that are that are out there. And who knows those? Our junior officers and our soldiers. And so we need to focus on education, and we need to encourage uh, our junior officers and soldiers to speak up, to write. Uh, you know, obviously people are concerned with security and, and, and things like that, and so there are processes. But really um, uh, that our... our Officers need to be encouraged to write about what they think, you know, future warfare is, is all about, uh, what might happen, because uh, from them we will, you know, future Clausewitzes will, will be born. Absolutely, and not just writing about the war that we hope to fight in the future. Exactly. The reality of what probably will be in the future, which is why I'm asking everybody, what, how do you see the future, what's your predictions, because, because it is the future. There's I, lots of different options out there, obviously. I think that, you know, we, we look basically um, at, uh, well, you know, America as a, as a superpower, but Australia as a as a great you know middle power, um, and you know other you know the UK Canada you know our five eyes you know we really look at uh, at our strong military capabilities NATO, um, and you know if we are to face threats, most adversaries cannot fight toe to toe, you know, and and even others that might you know, are going to take, you know, what is another popular jargonistic term, asymmetric approaches. Uh, And, you know, by that, I mean, people are going to always be looking for weaknesses and are always going to be trying to circumvent whatever the strengths are. You know, that's that's really the essence. Uh, You know, weaker forces have to overcome those, you know, their opponent's strengths. So they're going to be looking for, for weaknesses. So, you know, one of the things... Uh, and, and this is where we, we things get really difficult for us because we want to maintain our strengths, but then we want to try to um, uh, uh, mitigate all our vulnerabilities. But whatever our strengths are, our enemies are probably not going to fight us that way. And, and of course, then the argument is, well, then why are we investing in that? You know, and so why are we investing in high-end capabilities, the F-35? Uh, 
you know, and I, I, I don't know why, but, uh, you know, but my air power friends would tell you that you can't do anything without air superiority, which may or may not be true because uh, the Chinese in 1950 to 53 and the Vietnamese and, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, forces have done w- well without air superiority, uh, but um, I but do believe... But defense and deterrence you spoke sure, about earlier on. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so I, we do have to have those high-end capabilities, um, but we also need to know how to employ them in other ways. Mm-hmm. And that is really, um, you know, our nations are going to make investments uh, in these platforms and capabilities, but what, again, what our officers need to be able to do is figure out ways to employ them in the best way for traditional warfare, but also in irregular, unconventional manners to deal with these other threats uh, that may not be existential to us, to Australia or to the United States, but maybe to our friends, partners, and allies. And so um, we need to know how to deal with those threats, or more importantly, how to help others deal with those threats. And I think that's a, uh, a way of the future that... Uh, um, we we really must try to prevent us from becoming directly involved in other people's fights, but yet having the capability to help our friends, partners, and allies to be able to uh, defend themselves against lawlessness, subversion, insurgency, terrorism, you know, all the threats that may be existential to them. Yes, and fundamental to all that is obviously that war is about people and for people, fought by people, won or lost by people. And so whilst we develop all of these new technologies for defence and deterrence and to figure out how to use them within the future that will unfold before us, that we also need to grow that human capital because that the people are always our fundamental building block for our armed forces. Exactly. So what advice do you have for junior commanders? Well, I, I hope I've given some. And number one is continue to educate themselves. You know, attend schools uh, that, uh, you know, required schools, but others uh, that you can. So you've got to continue to develop because if we don't continue to uh, continue to think critically, you know, they will become stagnant and, uh, and we won't be of, of use to... Uh, um, we can't be a break glass kind of, kind of force. You know, we've always got to be evolving and looking for, uh, for better ways to do things. Uh, but the continued study of, uh, of history, uh, theory, um, and, uh, and again, uh, the most important is writing, but also communicating, networking. You know, today we have such a, a wired society, and we can communicate with friends around the world. Um, one of the things that, that I do personally, uh, I've been doing since 1996, I have my own email service about 700 people that is uh, that are in my network that I send out every day, you know, thought pieces, news, and, and commentary that I send out on strategic issues. Um, I also belong to, uh, at Leavenworth, the School of Advanced Military Studies, the plans list. Graduates of the School of Advanced Military Studies, we have a listserv, and every day people post things on it, and people are around the world, and we, we debate. You know, we struggle with issues, but we also help each other. People have have uh, problems, uh, you know, and, and are, are looking at, uh, at at strategic or operational problems. You know, it's a, a way to to crowdsource uh, solutions, and so uh, we take advantage of the modern technology to become much more uh, connected uh, and to use the uh, the collective knowledge and and brain power uh, that is out there. So I encourage people, you know, to 
to write on the internet and places like Small Wars Journal, War on the Rocks, uh, these forums are, I think, a great way to uh, to test ideas out there. You know, people need to take some risks, some intellectual risk, and uh, and be willing to throw it out there and and take the criticism uh, that comes because that's how we will uh, uh, will grow intellectually and uh, and that will make our officer corps, our soldiers, uh, and our military stronger. Absolutely. I, I find myself that I'm more than happy to discuss things on a one-on-one or in a group situation or in a mess. As soon as I get to writing it down, particularly sharing it, I actually find I need to put in more thought. And by writing it cements ideas or it makes you think more critically about an idea instead of just throwing out ideas or dismissing other ideas that you've you've heard and kind of gone, oh, well, that's not relevant to me because once you start to think about it or to write your own criticism, you realise that there are some pretty strong arguments out there, um, which is why I like the social media, digital media space because you can put some short ideas out there, but it still makes you think about it before you commit to hitting enter yeah. on anything. But I would also make sure that in all those debates and everything you contribute, one of the things that I do, and even even when you, you know, you're speaking off the cuff or writing off the cuff on a blog or something, collect all your information, mm-hmm. collect all those thoughts. Uh, they will pay off. I, I I always keep a list of topics I want to write about uh, and and things that I'm really interested in. I need to do more work on that. But keep a record of. I have. Every email I sent out with my commentary, I send it to a specific email address so I can archive it. Mm. And so I, I keep track of all the, the things I've said. You know, Sometimes I go back and say, did I really say that? That was, <laughs> that was kind of foolish. But uh, it helps me to, uh, one, it keeps track of things I, I've said so I can use them later and, and expound on them. Uh, and then the criticism I get of, of what I said you know, helps me to, uh, to develop and grow uh, intellectually as well. So... Um, Everything that you put out there, you know, of course, once it's out there, it's out there for everybody. But you want to also keep access to it for you, uh, for your professional development. Uh, and, you know, when you're in school later, you might have uh, already topics you want to research. You're already, uh, um, you know, there's there's areas that uh, that you're, you're passionate about. Uh, and that can pay off for you uh, in the future. And it's really important, I think, for junior commanders to learn at the early age the difference between a complaint and then adding professionally to an intellectual space through criticism, possibly, um, once they've given it their own independent thought. And that's a grey area that I think junior commanders may uh, sometimes cross a line in order to learn that lesson. But if they see the examples of what others are doing, then certainly that shows the path of professionalism while still working in digital media. Yeah, and, and of course the opposite is true too, and, and senior officers can't dismiss junior officers' mm-hmm. uh, complaints, you know, as just complaints, mm-hmm. you know. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, and uh, and while, yes, the ideal is that, uh, that junior officers are able to articulate problems and issues with solutions, uh, and, uh, and they should not be dismissed just because they're a junior officer. And the converse is that... Uh, uh, junior officers also have to realize, you know, where you stand depends on where you sit. And so our view of, of one one issue from one position is one view of one issue from one position. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've got to be careful that we, you know, don't overgeneralize uh, or don't uh, think that we know everything. Mm-hmm. You know, we are reporting what we see and what we think. Uh, and sometimes what happens is we think we know the answer to that problem. And while we should always suggest something, 
you know, we've got to be careful and not uh, become too doctrinaire and too um, too arrogant, uh, and uh, because uh, those kind of uh, uh, complaints, you know, they will uh, they will receive pushback and resistance. You know, you have to understand your target audience, yeah. and so so if you identify a problem, uh, you know, offer a solution, uh, and uh, and if there's not a solution, then understand that that uh, that's something we all need to contribute to uh, to try to find a solution to. Absolutely, and I think that's a really clever idea idea of yours to track the changes of your opinion over time and then to reflect on possibly why that's changed. If somebody starts at a junior level doing that, it would be fascinating to see over the course of a career whether they've done loops of the same ideas and come back to things and then gone off on another tangent, but why they've also done that. So that's a really clever idea. To, to end, do you have a good story or worry I sure do. for us? <laughs> I sure do. I was uh, commanding the Joint Special Operations Task Force in the Philippines, my second tour down there. Um, and uh, But uh, um, my first tour when I was on uh, the island of Baselon, the Burnhams were hostage, and uh, it was right after 9-11. Uh, and, and one of the um, – I had 13 special forces teams. You know, we had uh, uh, three Philippine brigades, Army and Marine. We had a division – uh, a, a lot of, lot of uh, elements down there, and very complex operations. But um, one time, I got a call from one of my teams and said that this village barangay, uh, barangay captain, kind of like a village mayor, uh, asked for me to come so he could thank me for something that we'd done. And I, I said I don't remember what we had done. And uh, and so I went to the village there, and there was the team in the village, and they were having a big celebration. And what they um, what they were celebrating is that they had a running water system. And what had happened was that uh, the um, and we were operating under tremendous constraints because of humanitarian assistance. And this is after nine eleven and authorities and and uh, money and uh, you know the lawyers are always uh, being you know looking over your shoulder. How's money spent? And we had no humanitarian assistance money. Nothing had been appropriated. But all our teams had operational funds to support themselves. And so they could spend the money on ways to ensure their security and their logistical support. They needed water in the camp that they were with, uh, the Philippine military. It was a very remote area. So they decided that uh, uh, they would go to the local uh, village and buy a sump pump and buy a bunch of PVC pipe. And there was a water source about two kilometers away. And so they piped it up to their, their camp. Well, in between that water source and that, uh, that camp, there was a village. And there was these old cisterns that had been built but had never been made functional. And so the, uh, the SF engineers and their Philippine counterparts, military counterparts, you know, they talked with the villagers and they, they showed ways that they could repair these. And then because they had piped up this water right by these cisterns, they showed how they could make a, a, a valve and keep those fill, uh, filled. And then gravitationally, the village had running water. And I, and I tell that story because, one, that village became beholden to the Philippine military and the U.S. forces that were there because their life was changed. But, two, that team uh, saw a problem. And, and of course, you know, the, what they really wanted, of course, not only to make the people's lives better, but was to be able to have the alliance of the people to gain information about the situation. And after that time none of the Abu Sayyaf could enter that village 
without it being reported to the Philippine security forces because, uh, you know, they, they knew where the support, you know, the support that they had and, and, uh, you know, and they were, they were allies and, uh, and they started to trust the military and everything because of what they'd done. But my special forces team never asked me. And of course I was, I, I was unknowing. I didn't know what they were doing out there. They were just making things happen within their power. They were thinking creatively. Uh, and then the village mayor was, was so happy and he wanted to thank me. And, and I went out there and, and, uh, and even though I, I had no idea what they had done, of course I was very proud of them. And, and it is, uh, it is an example, uh, where, um, uh, that, uh, you know, creative thinking, you know, understanding the problem, uh, and being able to, uh, to solve a problem in a creative way is, uh, you know, it works. I'd tell the one last story of, um, of how Abu Suleiman was killed in the Philippines. Uh, in Holo, there was a, a bombing of a co-op that supported the local Muslim population run by the Catholic Church. And, uh, and it was bombed. Five Muslims were killed, 26 were wounded. And one of the Abu Sayyaf uh, were, um, uh, became disillusioned that they were killing fellow Muslims. But more importantly, his wife was... Uh, um, you know, was really disillusioned and said, you know, what has the Abu Sayyaf done for us? Uh, you know, I can't put milk on the table for our children, you know, and yet the Philippine government has built a medical clinic and a school and, and has done all this. The Abu Sayyaf has done nothing for us. And that convinced that Abu Sayyaf member to become an informant. And there was a rewards for justice, uh, a $5 million reward for the leader of the Abu Sayyaf, Abu Suleiman. And um, that ASG member became an informant and provided Abu Suleiman's cell phone number. And our intelligence, and this happened in March of 2006, uh, in January of 2007, our intelligence got a hit on that cell phone number. And in between 2006 and 2000, uh, March 2006 and January 2007, uh, we conducted training, we conducted continuous civic action. Our psychological operations forces were conducting dissent and discord, trying to separate the low-level ASG from the leadership. But when uh, the national intelligence agencies got a hit on that cell phone, um, the uh, senior intelligence officer walked into our skiff and gave that information to Staff Sergeant Krista Kovach. And Krista, she knew exactly the importance of this. It was actionable intelligence. She didn't tell me. She didn't tell the J2. She picked up the phone and called her counterpart down in Holo and said, look, we've got actionable intelligence, and I know that one of our special forces teams just finished training the six special forces company and they're going to conduct an operation in this area. They'd give them this information. And then she and the staff sergeant, uh, staff sergeant light specialist niece put together a target intelligence package, transmitted that down to the, the U S special forces team. They helped the Philippine special forces, uh, uh, company plan. And she got that information at three o'clock in the afternoon at six o'clock that night, they were infiltrating walking through the jungle, climbing the mountain, and at 6 o'clock the next morning, uh, sure enough, they were at Abu Suleiman's camp, right where she said it would be. And Abu Suleiman walked out of the, the uh, perimeter to take his morning constitutional, and he was shot literally with his pants down. And I tell that story because um, in this type of, of warfare, it takes a long time to develop. Uh, many of capabilities contribute to, uh, uh, to the death of a high-value target, uh, but it takes people at every level understanding the problem, seeing the importance of information they have, and getting it to the right people at the right time to take action. 
You know, many people think that, uh, you know, well, the first thing I have to do is inform the commander. And that's that's right in many instances. And, of course, she did inform us, you know, but she got the ball rolling. You know, she took advantage of something that's time sensitive uh, and made sure that, uh, uh, you know, because she understood the situation. And, you know, we empowered her to do that. And uh, and it resulted in the death of the uh, leader of the Abu Sayyaf. And... Uh, and so, uh, so I offer that as a way to think about um, our junior leaders. Uh, one, need to be empowered. They should be empowered. And when they're empowered, uh, it will pay off in the long run. And uh, Because we can't centrally control everything at the, at the highest levels. Uh, the more complex things are, the more people have to be able to operate with a mission and intent and know that they can make decisions uh, to accomplish the mission. Uh, and uh, and that's what I've seen people do, and I think we have militaries with people that can do that, and we need to take advantage of that because it's a good thing. Absolutely. That's a great first story about the people-to-people interaction on the ground and the second story about you may have your own box of mm. your world on a deployment, but you always need to look outside mm. of just your own area and have that strategic perspective and the perspective of what everybody else is actually doing and up to in order to have that mission success. Thank you very much. Um, I think that that's a great way to end this morning's conversation. I'm about to depart and see whether it's snowing outside, which yeah. uh, I've heard that it may happen this afternoon. But thank you very much. Thank you. It's been uh, an honour to, uh, to try to make a contribution. I think what you're doing is very important, and I applaud you, and I applaud the Australian Army for letting you do this. This is, this is very important work. Thank you very much.